again, everyone. I am Mark Renee, and this is Play by Play with me. The me is me, Mark Renee. The play by play provided by our guests. And today's guest, as this is Volume 1, Episode 8, is the radio voice of the New York Islanders. Chris King is with us. Kinger, first of all, how are you and, and how is the family during this very difficult time in all of our lives? Oh, thanks for asking, Mark. Uh, I am well, and the family is well. You know, it's uh, it's a tough time for everyone, but uh, we know those that have it, you know, so much tougher for, than we do. So, uh, again, my heart and all my family's hearts just go out to those that are on the front lines and everybody, the doctors, the nurses, all those in the hospitals and all those still working the essential businesses to keep uh, everything flowing as it is. It, it's a real hard time for them, and, and uh, you know, my thoughts and prayers are just with them at this point. If, uh, if life had not changed in such a dramatic way about six weeks ago, you would be in the throes of getting your Long Island duck season underway and probably somewhere along the way in the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, with the Islanders. And I don't want to go all the way. Well, no, I do want to go all the way back to the beginning of the season. Your Islanders had their best run in franchise history in terms of consecutive games with at least one point. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, to go 17 straight games, uh, picking up a point every game. I was a 10-game win streak at one point, so that was real exciting too. But uh, yeah, there was some some great memories in there, some incredible uh, endings uh, of games, especially toward the end when uh, you know Brock Nelson scored back-to-back overtime winners. Uh, to keep the run going. So that was, uh, you know, an incredible, incredible start to go 15-0-2 in a 17-game span, have points in all 17, and and really, you know, uh, just come racing out of the gates. Unfortunately, you know, after that, it, it kind of was a, a, an NHL 500 hockey team all the way pretty much until the pause point. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, hopefully when it does resume, how different all these teams might be uh, with maybe a short sprint to the end of a regular season and then a Stanley Cup playoffs uh, where, again, everyone should be fresher than they'd ever be in Stanley Cup history, right? Yeah, before we uh, talk about some of the scenarios that have been discussed the last few days, I, I do need to point out that it's those Brock Nelson overtime goal-type calls of yours that actually get me in trouble with, <laughs> with listeners. And I'm going to tell you why, because I usually will roll those out right at 5.15 the morning after, and I get angry emails. Why are you playing this screaming guy so early in the morning? <laughs> but they're great calls. Oh, thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate that. I do tend to get very excited because uh, my passion goes back to day one with this organization, the New York Islanders. And usually that's what people say when, when they meet me for the first time. Oh, you're the crazy guy that gets, you know, screaming on goals. Uh, I go, yeah, that's me. That's me. And, uh, Again, I have what I call that, that Peter, Bra- uh, Peter Brady syndrome, where uh, those are those uh, fans of the Brady Bunch, that one episode where Peter's voice changes and they're <laughs> trying to sing the hit song, Time to Change. We all remember that one. Well, somehow that happens to my voice every time I get excited. There's nothing I can do about it. And uh, uh, I do get a lot of people that come up to me, and that's like the first thing they say when they meet me for the first time. So I just, you know, I can't control it, so I just kind of go with it. But I appreciate you playing it so much, Mark, because – Obviously, with the audience your radio station has, I hear about it from those people more than anyone else. Well, it's also, you know, I, in in full disclosure, you're on WRHU. Your flagship radio station is the station that I first started on in college. So I do have uh, a little bit of a conflict of interest that when you can, you know, 
pro provide me the content and, and a chance to mention WRHU on 50,000 watts and across the country, if not around the world, on uh, on the dot com and and uh, the other platforms that we're on. Um, you know, I, I feel compelled. I, I, I have to, you know, at least try to work them in. Um, <laughs> and as I like to tell people, it's not like you're angry. You know, there are some guys, I'm going to call him out. I don't know him. And, you know, I'm sure he's a great guy. I've heard nice things about him. But Dave Mishkin, for example, um, when he does a goal call for the Lightning, he sounds angry. Yeah, Dave is is the ultimate screamer, if you will. Uh, you know, uh, Dave reacts, uh, this is how I'll put it, every single goal the Lightning score is like, you know, game seven, triple overtime, Stanley Cup winning goal, <laughs> that type of excitement. Uh, but you know what, it's funny, like I know most of the people have never met Dave off the air. He could not be more opposite off the air than he is on the air. He is the quietest, nicest, most personable human being you'd ever want to meet. And like, if you would meet him and, and not know who he was, you'd never believe this is the guy that, uh, you know, treats every goal as if it's a, a, a triple overtime cup winning goal. And he's not angry about it, but uh, he just is over the top on every single goal. I try to reserve it for, uh, you know, for goals that maybe extend point streaks to 17 games in overtime. And he's like a lot of us, you know, he's very quiet until the red light goes on and, you know, yes, that's we're performing. True. That's Broadcasting is a performing art. Yeah, you're right. But but you know what I think people get with me, Mark, is that it's honest. It's not something that's forced. It's the it's the team I grew up with since day one. So it's that emotion that's coming out is not manufactured. It's genuine. And, you know, people tell me they feel that as well. They feel like they have, uh, you know, an Islander fan on the radio and I share the same enthusiasm and excitement and emotion and the roller coaster ride with them each and every night. I'm glad you mentioned that because it segues into the next point I wanted to make. Um if you can, give us a little uh, brief uh, The Life of Chris King uh, recap. How did you wind up with the Islanders back in the late 80s? Oh, boy. All right. Yeah, I'll give you the, the abridged version. Uh, it, it's an interesting story. So, And we do have time. So <laughs> We have nothing but time. Yeah. Um, all right. Here we go with the abridged version. Uh, grew up a huge Islander fan. As I said, you know, they came around in 72. I was 11 years old. I was a Bruin fan, actually, before that because of Bobby Orr. But at age 11, here come the Islanders at 72, and I had my own hockey team. So grew up loving them, always was the kid that, you know, was down in the basement, turning the sound down on the television, doing my own play-by-play. -play. Marv Albert was my guy, even though he wasn't an Islander announcer. He was my guy because, as you know, Marv Albert was everywhere. He would do the 6 o'clock sports on Channel 4, race over to the Garden, do a Nick game, do a Ranger game, race back to Channel 4, and do the 11 o'clock news, and he did that every single night. So... Uh, you know, Marv was my guy and uh, went to college in upstate New York at SUNY Geneseo, which was an incredible four years. They had a TV station and two radio stations, so got an unbelievable amount of experience there, including doing 100 NCAA hockey games in wow. four years. I just walked into a spot where the seniors had graduated. They said, come on, freshmen, we'll teach you how to do this. And right from day one, I uh, had the chance to do NCAA hockey. So... Also had another interesting college though, and that was computer science. So when I graduated Geneseo with my bachelor's in communications, I went on to Binghamton, also in upstate New York for two more years to get my master's in computer science. So I came out with a master's in computer science and immediately got a job on Long Island with Grumman, which was a huge company at the time, yeah. uh, Long Island presence of over 30,000 employees at the time doing software engineering and was very happy doing that. But little by little, Mark, I just, I really missed a, a big part of my life and that was radio that I'd left behind. So I said, you know, how can I get back into this on a part-time basis? So I was living out east on Long Island at the time and there was a classic rock station there called WRCN. 
And I said, this would be a good place to start back at studios were in Riverhead, uh, kind of right on my way to Grumman. I was working in Calverton in uh, Eastern Long Island and living in Hampton Bay. So Riverhead was literally in between on the way to and fro. So I you know, touched base with them and said, look, I used to do a ton of radio. I haven't done any in a long time, but I'd love to get back on the air. So they agreed to let me come back as many of us have started doing the graveyard shift, the overnight mm -hmm. shift. I would DJ those overnight shifts, but I love music. That's my other big love. So uh, just to be playing music on the radio and doing those DJ shifts, you know, 12 to 6 a.m., midnight to 6 a.m., I just love the fact that I was back on radio again. So that went on as my foot back in the door. And then I said to them, hey, look, you know, I have this whole big history of loving the Islanders and doing hockey on the radio. Would you guys let me do a one minute report that would air on the morning show recapping the Islander game of the night before? And they said that would be great. So what I would do, Mark, is when it was a home game, I would do, you know, go to the Coliseum, cover the game, get my sound in the locker room, do a one minute report they air on the morning show when it was an away game. I just would watch it at home and do the same one-minute report. I obviously just didn't have actualities of sound bites that I could add in. So I still did that for five years now. That was the setup where I would do my software engineering job at Grumman, 9 to 5. I would cover the Islander games, home at the Coliseum, rode from my home for five years, and, and everything was fine. I was getting my radio fixed. Everything was working well. Well, what happened was after that, the Islanders got the rights, uh, excuse me, WRCN got the rights to broadcast the Islander game. Right. So they became the flagship radio station. Yeah, it was uh, – 1994, it was a rock station that was suddenly going to broadcast NHL hockey. They called it Rock Hockey, and, uh, <laughs> and that was what they went with. But they needed someone to do the pregame show, the postgame show, and the intermission show. They had their play-by-play -play guy. That was the legendary Barry Landers. They had their color guy. That was Mr. Islander, Bobby Nystrom. But they needed somebody to just, you know, do the pregame, do the postgame, do the intermission. And they said, you know, here's Chris King. He knows this team inside out. He's followed them from day one. Let's let him do that job. So I started there, you know, doing that now. And that was my first taste of the broadcast being on the Islander broadcast in 1994 wow. as the pregame, postgame intermission guy. And that was a thrill, just sitting next to Barry Landers, my mentor, and Bobby Nystrom every single night, uh, soaking up as much as I could, you know, learning about the job as I possibly could, but yet, you know, being a part of the broadcast as well. I did that for two years, and then it moved to a different music station a legendary music station that i had grown up listening to which is wlir an alternative station so they not only wanted me to do the jobs that i was doing when it was on wrcm but they wanted me to produce the broadcast and engineer the broadcast as well and as you know mark in this business you never say no you no. say sure i Absolutely. can do that as well too so at that point i'm doing pre-game post-game intermission producing and engineering the broadcast on wlir so did that for two years and then I reached what uh, I always refer to now as that fork in the road. It's 1998. I'm still doing the software engineering thing. Uh, at that point, I'd moved on to Reuters, a, a different company, as Grumman had had some changes. Uh, but the Islanders came to me in 1998 and said, you know, we'd like you to be the color analyst. Bobby Nystrom would like to step away from this, uh, step away from the travel. And uh, we'd love, you know, for you to uh, be the color analyst, but you'd have to do it full time. So there's that, you know, fork in the road I referred to. Twin as, forks. You know, You're a Long yeah, Island guy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You, you got to make the decision. It's 1998. I have a job that I like that pays very well doing software engineering. And they're offering me a job that I know I would love. But, mm -hmm. of course, being in radio doesn't pay much at right. all. Uh, but you know what? At that point, Mark, I, I, the, the real reason I, I, I made the leap was I just couldn't have looked back the rest of my life saying, what if, what if, mm -hmm. what if, if I didn't do it? So I said, you know what? I'm going to try it. I'm going to leave the software engineering career behind. Then in 1998, uh, I started being the color analyst. I did that for a dozen years. 
And I had some great partners. I went through, uh, you know, from Jim Cerny to John Weideman to Steve Mears, all great guys, great broadcasters. And then the Islanders in the 2009-2010 season decided they were going to do a simulcast of the MSG television broadcast. So literally, Steve and I were fired. Um, I talked my way back in just telling them they needed somebody to do a pregame, a postgame, an intermission, kind of my old job, even if they were running the TV sound. Right. And kind of agreed to do that, hoping it would be such a disaster that within a year they'd be back to doing real radio. And it turns out that's exactly what happened. So uh, the simulcast was such a disaster, as it always is. You know, TV and radio play-by-play of hockey is so different that a year later they realized it was wrong. They decided they want to come back with real radio. And that's when the deal came together with Hofstra. So it was amazing uh, timing that the Islanders and Hofstra got together and decided that, you know, Hofstra would be the flagship radio station, WRHU, for Islander Broadcast. I would move from, uh, you know, my previous role of color analyst and my current role as intermission host to play-by-play, which is something I always wanted to do. And the Hofstra students uh, would be the color analyst to begin and would also do all the work in the studio and on site and intermission features. And it was uh, an incredible time at the start because I'll tell you the true story, Mark. They gave the Islanders gave Hofstra 10 games. We're going to give you 10 games to see if you can pull this off because nobody would think a college station could produce an NHL broadcast. Well, the late Ed Ingalls, who, you know, we all worship and uh, was a mentor to all of us who just recently has passed away, dug in and he said, we are going to make this happen. So he worked with every single student to make sure that those that didn't even know the game of hockey learned what their job was going to be, taught them how to be color analysts, taught them how to be update men, taught them how to produce a game. Without Ed, we're not even talking about the Islanders on Hofstra Radio right now. And and when he recently passed, Mark, I tell the story, you know, Ed Ingalls turned a 10-game tryout into 10 years now of New York Islander hockey on WRHU. So I think of Ed every time the mic cracks, and I get emotional now thinking about Ed because I know without Ed, that might have ended at 10 games, and I might not be doing what I'm doing right now. And the Hofstra students would have missed 10 years of unbelievable experience that every one of them can put on their resume now to say, uh, you know, that they worked in NHL broadcast. And, and to me, it's become, you know, again, I know I'm biased, but one of the best broadcasts in the National Hockey League because of the involvement of the Hofstra students and because of the work of, of the late Ed Ingalls, our great friend. Yeah, and of course, uh, um, you know, WRHU uh, has turned out some tremendous talent. I mean, I, you know, I, I joke all the time you know, with a little bit of truth to it, that if I was trying to get on the air now, as opposed to 30-something years ago when there was very little competition and they were practically begging people to come down and be on the air, I don't know that I would pass the audition going up against these kids. They're they're unreal. I'm and, the same way, Mark. I'm and, the same way. that The students that are coming through now at WRHU, miles ahead of, like, I listen back to my college tapes. Oh, my goodness. It, it's... <laughs> It's night and day different. You're exactly right. Yeah, you say miles. I say light years. It, yeah, it's frightening. <laughs> it really is frightening. And Eddie, you know, I, I mean, you you say he turned it into a 10-year thing. I don't even know that it would have gone 10 games yep. without, no, without right. Ed. And, you're of course, right. we need to credit Bruce Avery and John Mullen, too. Yes, um, absolutely. But, you know, uh, they are, again, the driving force, and they yeah. continue to be each and every game. But without Ed's hands-on mentoring of those students to turn them uh, you know, into hockey broadcasters. Remember, you know, Hofstra doesn't have a hockey team. None of them had ever worked a hockey broadcast. And suddenly they're joining me not only on the broadcast in 
you know, uh, roles as uh, reporters and producers and engineers, but as color analysts. They were the color analysts at the beginning, a rotating cast. We would take the three best Hofstra students and they would rotate through that color analyst seat. So you want to talk about an incredible opportunity uh, for, you know, 20 year old students. It, it was unbelievable the work that Ed did with them to get them ready. Speaking of opportunity, uh, and you had mentioned uh, working with Cerny and uh, Weideman and Mirzi, um, as those guys are coming and going and you're still in chair number two as the analyst, do you start to get a sense that maybe you won't get your shot? Yeah, you know, great question. It, it, it certainly... It certainly was in the back of my mind that I wanted to do play-by-play because in, in college, I had done both. We were smart enough at Geneseo where every broadcast we rotated by period. I would do the play-by-play of the first, the color of the second, the play-by-play of the third, and then we'd switch it around the next game. So uh, credit you know, WGSU and Geneseo and WGBC, the two stations there, for making us well-rounded broadcasters and doing both roles. But, yeah, uh, not, not so much – the first time it had, again, the, the initial transition is Jim Cerny's there for three years and then they decided to make a change and bring in John Weideman. And I, again, at that point, having only done it three years, not so much. Then with John Weideman, I'd been his partner for five years uh, when he decided to go back home towards Chicago. He's won three Stanley Cups since it's worked yeah, out pretty he's well. Worked out okay, right. Yeah, but at that point, absolutely. I, I, you know, let it be known that I wanted to be considered for that job. And again, was, you know, was hoping to get that job and didn't, but I still had a job that I loved. I had to look at it that way. They brought in, you know, a young guy named Steve Mears, who at the time, uh, I didn't know anything about, nobody did. He was in the CHL uh, at the time, which is an unheard of leap to the National Hockey League. But obviously uh, he turned out incredibly well as, uh, you know, when we both got fired, he went home to Pittsburgh, caught back on with his hometown team, the Penguins, did some work there for them. I uh, got picked up by the NHL Network, where he did incredible work and became basically the voice of uh, World Junior Hockey for Team USA, and then eventually got you know his dream job, which was doing Penguins television for Hall of Famer Mike Lang, who's you know a legend in Pittsburgh, just like Marv Albert is in New York. Uh, and, and you know Mike is still doing Penguins radio, but Steve now has replaced him on television. So at the time, you know, being fired, Steve and I together in 2009 was the worst thing you think could possibly happen. But in the end, I end up getting the job I wanted most. Steve ends up getting the job he wanted most. Uh, so, you know, they always say, Mark, things happen for a reason. And uh, you don't always think it at the time. But in retrospect, it worked out great for both of us. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a terrific run. I mean, listen, you're going on year 30 next year. Um, I do want to get back to the uh, to the NHL scenario before we move ahead. And uh, the latest rumors that we've heard are that the league is considering uh, picking one city from each of the four divisions and one arena and playing triple headers to try and make up for some lost time. Um, how practical do you think that idea is? Yeah, you know what, Mark? I think it's the only one that, to me that really makes the most sense to just get started back. I don't know that you know it would you would have to play the entire rest of the regular season if there is one that way the entire stanley cup playoffs if they exist that way but i think you know from what commissioner bettman said on uh, the sportsnet interview this past wednesday uh that to me makes the most sense uh neutral sites to me is not what you want to do and he pointed out you know those buildings just aren't made for the television broadcasts and they're not set up for you know multiple teams so i could see a scenario where again you you pick 
you know, four current NHL arenas, which are set up for multiple locker rooms, which are set up for television broadcasts, which some of which have multiple rinks. And that's something that, that Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, talked about as well. And maybe you, you know, try to come back that way, having eight teams in each city playing three games a day. Why couldn't you play? Let's say you have the eight teams there, a one o'clock game, a four o'clock game, a seven o'clock game, no fans in the building. All three of those broadcasts on television, all three of those broadcasts on radio. And I think Columbus is the real strong potential for the Metro Division because they have a second rink in the building. That's the practice rink for the Blue Jackets. That's a full size NHL sheet where teams could practice. And they have what's called the Arena District. It's completely surrounded on all sides by, you know, hotels, restaurants, bars that could, you know, support uh, whatever auxiliary people need to be in position to do their job. So that to me is the one that makes the most sense, uh, keeping everybody together in one spot, having NHL ready arenas, broadcast crews, uh, even like I said, that, that second sur ice service, a second sheet of ice would be so big, maybe for the two teams that aren't playing that day, they're the ones practicing on the, the extra sheet of ice. And then everybody's playing, you know, two every three days, three every four days. And then the other two teams are getting the day off. So I do like that. It does make sense. I hope that that wouldn't have to be, the scenario, you know, that would carry it through July and August and September and even the Stanley Cup playoffs. But if things haven't loosened up by then, that may be the new reality market. And you still say, hey, uh, it wouldn't be what everyone would want, but it would be a way to get through the season, you know, take September off uh, or finish up in September, take October off. And certainly there's been talk that you could start a new season in November, you know, skipping a couple of exhibition games, skipping an all-star week and still get the full 82 game schedule in next year. Yeah, I guess we can just cross our fingers and, and hope that something comes to fruition. Uh, the other thing you would be doing this time of year is uh, at the uh, the Atlantic League, your Long Island Ducks. How much do you miss them? A ton. I really do, Mark. I, I really do. And for those that don't know, um, I've done that since day one of franchise history. They started back in 2000. Uh, I've been able to do that. Every year uh, since the beginning, we just celebrated last year our 20th anniversary season by winning our fourth Atlantic League championship and, uh, and having the greatest season in team history. So I really do miss it. It's, uh, it's interesting because the play-by-play the -play itself of those two sports couldn't be more different. Hockey is edge of the seat. Go, 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 go. Barely get a chance to breathe. Incredible pace, incredible energy. Baseball is just the opposite. It's sit back. Here's the pitch, just a bit outside. <laughs> Find your rhythm. It's slow. It's, uh, you know, but what has happened over the course of these 20 years, Mark, is after six months of doing one, I'm really ready for the other. So after six months of go, go, go with hockey, I'm ready for six months of let's pull it back a, a little bit and do baseball. But after those six months, I need to get back at it. Now I need to get back into that high energy game and boom, here comes the next hockey season. So they've dealt dovetailed perfectly one into the other for these past 20 years with some exceptions and again happily exceptions like last year when the Islanders went to the second round of the playoffs um, I had to delay the start to my baseball season so the Ducks have been great in that they understand that you know hockey's my, my first priority and they're always like come to us when the hockey season's over so the only real concern I have right now is with this current you know potential hockey taking place uh, regular season in July Stanley Cup playoffs in August and September how am I going to fit in my, my baseball broadcast right. if that's when the majority of the baseball games are done? But I'm sure, you know, in the end, something will work out, as it always seems to do. But I absolutely love minor league baseball. Um, I live three miles from the ballpark. So I'm in East Isop. The ballpark's in Central Isop. 
Uh, that's the other part of it that I really enjoy. Whereas, you know, for six months, I'm flying all over North America to cover hockey games. In the six months of the summer, usually I'm going nowhere. I'm going three miles down the road to a ballpark that I've been in since, you know, the shovels were put in the ground and it just feels like home. So I love, love, love to death both of my jobs. I'm totally blessed in that regard. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they both can come together, uh, you know, after we, we pass this crisis. Well, I'm sure if there are schedule conflicts, your partner with the Ducks won't be terribly upset to get more games. Give me your favorite David Weiss story, please. <laughs> oh, my goodness. have to butter him up a little bit because he's not on the show and he's going to want to know why I didn't ask. And he is on the list to be here eventually. God, you have to get David. Yeah, for those who don't know David Weiss, I mean, you want to talk about a guy who can wear multiple hats. He, uh, you know, you put him on 10-10 wins and he's the voice of God and he's bringing you the news from around the world and he's Walter Cronkite, my goodness. <laughs> and then you put that baseball hat on him in the broadcast booth beside me and he is the funniest broadcaster I've ever had a chance to work with, bar none. He comes up with amazing things you wouldn't even think about doing he's got the, the craziest calls you've ever heard he does songs he sings he tap dances he does it all mark so uh, uh it'd be impossible to find you know one particular thing but uh he's kind of integrated uh, an actual duck call you know which uh, hunters use right. little quackers which the ducks have kind of handed out as uh as souvenirs, it's actually the most popular souvenir for the fans. But he's the only broadcaster I ever know who's, uh, you know, been able to integrate a duck call into his actual broadcast. So when he's closing out a game and shouting, "The Ducks win! The Ducks win! The Ducks win!" He's blowing into an actual hunter's duck call to make that sound of a duck uh, celebrating every victory. So I'll give you that one of of ten thousand memories I have of working alongside David Weiss. Uh, Again, I, I've never had so much fun as I as I have when I work with David. And he's turned it into a makeshift shofar, too, over the years. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Unbelievable. Uh, your manager for a while is now the manager of the New York Boulders in the Frontier League, having moved from the Can-Am League. Uh, Kevin Baez, who's a great guy. I got to work with him last season, his first year in uh, Rockland County. Uh, give me a KB story, if you could. Oh, my goodness. KB, what a great guy. I had so many years with him as a player, first of all, for the Long Island Ducks and then as a manager. And, you know, he's arguably the greatest duck ever because, you know, you look at the combination of, uh, you know, winning one championship as a player, being a three time all star in his three years with the Ducks, a former Mets player and a shortstop for the Ducks. And then, you know, winning uh, a couple of championships uh, as a manager as well. So there's never been anyone more successful. In fact, up until this year, when Wally Backman was our manager and won the championship, uh, Kevin, you know, was the only person along with Buddy Harrelson who was in uniform for all three Ducks championship. Of course, Buddy as our first base coach and Kevin one year as a player and two as a manager. But uh, just so many great memories of hanging out in KB's office before the game. And, and just, uh, you know, the best thing about Kevin, I'll tell you, Mark, is he and I've been through a lot of coaches and a lot of managers who don't like when you second guess them. They have very thin skin and uh, they don't like that. Kevin was just the opposite. I could walk into Kevin's office the day after a game where maybe he made a decision I didn't think was the right one, I could tell him that, and we could go back and forth on it for an hour, and he wouldn't get angry about it. He would just want to lay out his side of it. I'd want to lay out my side of it, but so many other managers don't even want to have that discussion. So I, I think the best thing for KB, for me, was that relationship that I had with him that I knew I could bring up anything, and I mean anything that occurred on that field, and he would not be afraid to talk about it, and he would not be – upset if I viewed it completely different and, and thought he cost us the game. And there's not too many people, you know, that you can have that kind of relationship with. But I think because we built that relationship 
from player to manager on his side. And he knew that I had been there since day one. You know, he certainly respected that I had seen everything and have seen everything that's happened in franchise history and was comfortable enough to have those discussions with me. So I just miss uh, sitting in Kevin's office every night and having those type of discussions with him. Great, great man, as I know you found out up in Rockland. Well, it's funny, you know, you mentioned the the day after discussions, you know, the, the Monday morning quarterbacking, if you will. And I remember the first time that something like that happened last season. And I walk into his office and I'm sort of very, you know, tentatively bringing it up. And he looked at me and says, why are you tiptoeing? Because <laughs> like, well, it's just I, me. You know, I don't, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get on your bad side. We, you know, we have a long season ahead and I just want to make He's sure that. me, Mark. That's why it's used to me coming right at him. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, you know, and, and he says, to, you know, don't just, if you have a question, ask a question. We can talk yeah. about it. And I, you know, that was. Tremendous. And, you know, Jamie Keefe, uh, his predecessor, was like that, too. But, uh, you know, th- that's a rare breed. You know, there, there are not a lot of guys who want to rehash, you know, especially if it didn't go the way they wanted it to. A lot of guys are loath to, you know, relive their bad decisions, even though they're not at the very moment bad decisions. Sometimes they turn out to be that way. And it's good to have people, you know, in the business that you have to work with on a regular basis who are, who are open to, you know, discussions and, and criticism. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, Mark. And you know, it's so funny. It comes full circle now because that's how Barry Trotz is too. You can say anything to Barry Trotz and he's well, wor- willing to work through it with you and say, okay, you know, if we would have done this, how do you think this would have played out that type of thing? So I get that same kind of feeling when talking to Barry Trotz as I did with Kevin. With Chris King, the radio voice of the Islanders and the, play-by-play voice of the Long Island Ducks. Uh, We will get back to the fun stuff. It is play-by-play with me where I get to talk to the voices in my headphones, and that's what we're doing today. And hopefully uh, anybody who's listening is learning a little something, and uh, we hope to entertain you. But uh, let me get a little serious now because of the quarantine situation. Aside from the Islanders and the Ducks, what are you really missing the most being stuck at home? Well, I think, first of all, Mark, just, uh, you know, the time of the year it was for hockey. When the season was paused back on March 12th, the Islanders had played 68 games. They were a point out of a playoff spot, battling like mad. There were three weeks to go in the regular season. There's no better hockey in the regular season than the final three weeks. And then, of course, there's no hockey like Stanley Cup hockey. And, you know, hoping that the Islanders would get there, I certainly thought they were going to. So, Uh, You know, you work all year long to get to those games. That's been the the toughest part on the Islander side of things And that, you know, right now the hockey that you missed was you did all the work. You did 68 games to get to that point of the 14 most meaningful games of the year. And then Stanley Cup hockey, which for me is not like any other sport. Uh, I know every other sport has great playoffs as well, but there's something about hockey that the level is just so different come playoff time that there's nothing like Stanley Cup hockey. So I think it was... You know, on the hockey side, more just missing out on the best time of year, the year that, you know, the the uh, the work that you put in was to get you there. And then to have that taken away, that was the hardest time. I certainly do hope it comes back and I hope it would, you know, live up to what it would have been. And from the baseball side of things, you know, Mark, there's just there's only one opening day, right? There's only one opening day. There's only, you know, one chance to have opening day every single year. And for the Ducks, you know, coming off a 20th anniversary season where we won a championship, that May 1st home game was going to be ring night, was going to be raise the banners, hand out the rings. And that makes, you know, opening night that much better. 
So those are the two things I miss most. Just, you know, the greatest time of year as far as hockey's concerned. And opening night in baseball doesn't matter to me, you know, what's going on. It's still opening night. But if you're telling me, you know, we're going to raise that fourth banner, we're going to hand out the rings, that just makes opening night that much better. So that's why, you know, losing both of those, at least temporarily, has been very difficult for me. And the, the crazy thing for me, Mark, is just my brain only knows how to function one way, and that's what's the next game? What's the next game? I am always getting ready for the next game almost as soon as the current one ends. It's just the way I've been programmed for 30 years now. Uh, and to not know when that next game is, my brain is, is having a hard time trying to deal with that because that's just how I'm wired. Yeah, so with nothing to prep for imminently, how are you, in fact, passing the time? Yeah, lots of time with the family. Obviously, here at home, we're trying to self-quarantine and, and stay in and go out as little as possible, getting out a little bit to, you know, play in the backyard with my son and our dog and running around there, biking a little bit with my daughter. So do try to get out with them, you know, just doing the safe things as far as getting out is concerned. Um, a couple little things, uh, you know, interviews like this and things that I've done. Uh, we got some things we're working on with the Islanders, hopefully on the social media side that will kick in soon as well. Um and that's pretty much it, you know, just trying to, you know, read that news every day. And that certainly gave us all a little bit of hope when Gary Bettman kind of came out with that plan, if you will. And then certainly a report, as you mentioned yesterday in the post, that, uh, you know, teams could start, you know, gearing up pretty soon. So uh, the hope that it will return is really what keeps everybody going. But the hope that, you know, everyone can be safe again, that the, the real people who are putting their lives on the line every day is the most important thing. And I think, you know, one of the extra hurdles that the NHL will have to overcome is that you don't have guys skating, you know, because the rinks are closed down. Now you can do some other conditioning, but you can't replicate skating and practicing uh, when you don't get on the ice. So how long do you think they might need once given the all clear to resume a season? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny you brought that up because I was reading a big story yesterday. It was Wayne Gretzky who reached out to people and said, hey, if you're looking to skate, inline skate, right? So apparently now there's been this run on rollerblades <laughs> like they haven't seen in ages, and it's hard to find rollerblades now. So, you know, that is at least skating. It, it's somewhat similar. Obviously, I've done both, and they are different too, but that's the closest thing that can replicate skating is to get on rollerblades if you can some of the islanders who live in canada are still skating because it's cold enough up there and they can do that outside but uh yeah the skating thing is the one thing you can't bring back so i think they're talking about you know three weeks maybe mark training camp but i think you'd have to be you know kind of ready going into that and that's what i think larry brooks's story in the post was yesterday saying uh at least he had heard that one team was telling their players you know may 15th kind of start getting ready on your own so that when training camp does start uh, you'll be in shape. So I think three weeks to me would be the minimum uh, mini training camp, if you would, that would be necessary to get everybody up to uh, hockey shape again. And baseball, you know, we've been reading so much about it every day. Uh, it's so different because of pitchers. Pitchers take so much longer to get back up to speed, starting pitchers in particular. Uh, they might require even longer than that before they can get going again. I know you're from hockey. I know you're from baseball. Have there been any other sports that you've called on a regular basis? Not on a regular basis. No, no, that's really the only two. It's funny. I've never done a basketball game at all. I've never done a football game, which, uh, you know, I like football a lot. And that, that intrigues me. Uh, just talking to some of the guys that have covered football and how different uh, it is to do a football broadcast with a spotter and, uh, you know, all that type of stuff. So, no, in college, I did a little bit of soccer, a little bit of uh, lacrosse. 
and again, a hundred plus hockey games. So no hockey and baseball been my two. And I never was much of a basketball guy. So uh, that didn't interest me at all. Football, like I said, I think I would find interesting to do just because of how different it is talking to Brendan Burke, the great uh, TV voice of the New York Islanders did a lot of college football. And one time on a bus ride, I think it was, he was explaining to me how his spotter works and his statistician and this other guy and how he's, you know, getting all this information kind of handed to him. Uh, it was totally unique to me. And I'd never even knew that that's how it works. So football in that instance would be intriguing to me just to see how you'd work in all these other people uh, who act as spotters and, and picking up all the other players that you have to talk about on every play. All the games that you've done over the years, 20 years with the Ducks, going on close to 30 in the Islanders booth, or at least around the Islanders. What's the one play-by-play -play moment in your career that stands out the most? Wow. Yeah, so, so, so many. I mean, I'll start with the Ducks, and that's certainly uh, the first championship. It's 2004. Uh, it's the fifth year in the league for the team. They hadn't even made the playoffs the first four years. Uh, they made the playoffs in dramatic fashion in 2004. The Ducks did. They had a one-game playoff uh, that they had to win. Uh, a crazy scenario, uh, like a one-game makeup in Bridgeport uh, on August 9th. And uh, had like 700 Duck fans take the ferry up there to go oh, over. Wow. With, uh, yeah, one game uh, for all the marbles on the line. Won that game to qualify for the playoffs. Uh, and then, uh, you know, made their way uh, through the playoffs in, in fine fashion. And just getting the call. The first championship for the Long Island Ducks. First championship is always special. It's 2004. They played the Camden River Sharks in a best three out of five. The first two they won on Long Island in, in waddle-off fashion, as we call it, Mark. We don't walk off. We're Ducks. So we waddle off. So we win games one and two. Uh, head down to Camden, New Jersey. Uh, fall behind in that game. Uh, come back and rally and win that game. So uh, the championship moment is uh, Justin Davies is our uh, – Retired number four, greatest one of the greatest players in franchise history. He's in center field. Jason Johnson's our right fielder. And uh, the final batter for the Camden River Sharks, uh, Tony Rodriguez hits a fly ball to right center. Justin Johnson makes the catch, and, you know, the Ducks win their first championship, and I get to do the play-by-play -play of that. So there's no doubt that that's my, my top Ducks moment. As far as Islanders are concerned, I think everybody uh, kind of associates me with the, the yes, yes, yes call of, of John Tavares. <laughs> Double overtime winner. It's 2016. It's game six. It's double overtime in Brooklyn against the Florida Panthers. And, uh, you know, John has that incredible individual effort where Roberto Luongo stops him on the first shot, but he picks up his own rebound, circles the net and puts it in. And, uh, you know, the yes, yes, yes thing was something that had become really popular among the fans that year. And again, I give a lot of credit to Jiggs McDonald because earlier in the season, uh, Jiggs at the end of a TV broadcast when he was filling in for Howie Rose just kind of calmly said, uh, oh boy, what a victory tonight this was for the New York Islanders, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and that's the way Jiggs did that. And I, I, I listened to it and I said, why have I not used that in any broadcast ever when the fans are doing it five, six times a game if they're scoring that many goals, right? So I kind of tucked it away and said, if I ever get a moment where I think I can get in yes, 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 I'm going to use it, and certainly, you know, a goal to clinch their first playoff series win in 23 years uh, was worthy of a yes, yes, yes. I didn't expect it to become viral like it did, Mark, but uh, I certainly am happy that, you know, Jiggs McDonald kind of planted the seeds that the fans had sown all year long, and uh, I, I kind of used it at what I thought was an opportune time, and, uh, you know, looking back on it, yeah, I, w I was real happy with how it came out, but I have to give Jiggs uh, part of the credit, the Hall of Fame broadcaster, for planting the seed. It's amazing. He's been 
quote unquote retired for all these years, yes. but he still shows up for all the big moments. He was at the two Jersey retirements yep. earlier this season. It, it's great to still have him around. And I know you'd mentioned working with Barry earlier. And I, I always joke with Barry that during my four years at Hofstra, I was a beer vendor at the Coliseum and essentially where, you know, you in the production booth or in the radio booth might've been uh, sort of a, a caddy to Barry. I got to eat his leftovers every night. <laughs> So well, I'll tell because you they the let point. the vendors in to the media dining room after everybody had finished and had, you know, repaired to the to the press box. So I, I always joked with him that I was kind of glad when he, you know, when the chicken parm was was <laughs> piping hot that he and the rest of the crew left a little for the vendors. Well, it's a funny story, Mark, but Barry Landers, who's, again, another legendary mentor of mine, 17 years of play by play Islanders radio is well known for knocking over beverages in the broadcast booth. <laughs> so you had better, you know, be a good distance away because when the Islanders scored again, he had that great emotion and energy. And, you know, I, I take a lot of that from Barry. I do. But he would like jump up sometimes and throw both arms out to the side. He'd knock over a cup of soda that was on his left and he'd knock over a cup of water that was on his right. And suddenly what were your game notes were now reduced to <laughs> a, a, a shriveled up piece of paper where you couldn't read a single thing on it. But that was the energy and the emotion of the great Barry Landers. And, you know, I was thrilled we got Barry to come back and do one period uh, when the Coliseum was, quote unquote, closing out. We all thought it was going to be the end. Right. Uh, we got Barry back to do one period of hockey, and that was great. And I think we'd have to do it again next year before it closes for what we think will be the final time. And then Belmont opens in October of 21. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. As a diehard Islander fan, for as long as you have been a fan of this team, uh, number one, how much did it mean that they were able to get back to the Coliseum? And, and number two, how much does this new arena at Belmont Park mean? Both mean everything. Both mean absolutely everything, Mark. As you said, a diehard fan, you know, you never think you're going to get the chance to go back, right? We literally asked everyone we could think of, every broadcaster we could think of in any sport to try to come up with a scenario where a team left their longtime home for every game they'd ever played, went away for a few years, and got to come back. It, it just doesn't happen. Those buildings are now parking lots. They're movie theaters. They're supermarkets. That's what... You know, those those places are in Pittsburgh, Montreal and Toronto, respectively, right now. So you don't get to go back to the place where all the glory happened and getting back there, you know, for a half a split two years ago. And then for the majority of the games this year, uh, it's just been incredible. It's like, uh, you know, a trip down memory lane every single night. And I can't wait to see what next year is going to be like, you know, knowing that now it is going to be the final year of, of the uh, converted Coliseum. And then just to have the Islanders back on Long Island, Belmont Park, uh, those that have you know seen the the the, uh, the renderings and how beautiful it's going to be, and just the fact that it's back on Long Island, uh, you know Mario, uh, excuse me, Andrew Cuomo, uh, Mario's son, you know said it so succinctly at the, the groundbreaking ceremony. He said, "Look, you know the island; it's in their name. They're the Islanders. So you got to play on Long Island." And uh, I can't wait to see you know how great that building's going to be because I know all the work that's gone into it from the ownership group, uh, you know, that they visited every NHL arena, every NBA arena. They're taking the best of everything they've seen to put into that building, and it's going to be spectacular. So, yeah, Mark, I really do look forward to, you know, what should be hopefully a great end to this season, if and when it returns, an incredible final year in the Coliseum. And then people may not realize this, but that first year in Brooklyn, which is scheduled to open in October of 21, which still is, is the 50th year of the Islander franchise in the National Hockey League. So what better way could you celebrate 50 years in the NHL than to open up a brand new building that's all your own and back on Long Island? Indeed. As we wind things down, uh, 
aside from getting back to all your game prep for hopefully two sports, uh, hockey and baseball, what do you suppose will be the first thing you do when we get the all clear? Uh, jump for joy, bounce off the walls. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I miss it. I miss it something fierce. And uh, I know Howie Rose, uh, another great mentor of mine, just recently said he, he viewed it as like a Grand Canyon-sized uh, gap in his life right now. And, and I totally agree with him on that. So, yeah, just can't wait to find out, you know, how it's going to play out. There are still some interesting things that could happen from the broadcast side of it, Mark. Certainly there is the possibility that, when they return, if they decide to do it to empty buildings, they may try to minimize the people in those buildings. So am I going to be broadcasting from, let's say, Columbus, Ohio, which to me is a great possibility of where the Metro Division could play? Am I going to be at the Coliseum or am I going to be in a studio? There certainly is a good possibility I could be broadcasting from the studios of WRHU if they decide they just want to run one television feed out of that building and send it to you know, MSG for the TV broadcasters to do off a monitor and send it to WRHU for myself and Greg Picker to do off a monitor. That's something I've never done either is broadcast off a monitor. So uh, that would be a possibility. It would be different. It would be unique. I'd prefer to be at the game, obviously, when it occurs. But I do understand if they're trying to limit the number of people that are going to be in that building, then it might have to play out that way. So, uh, so much ahead to think about as to how the broadcast itself is going to go. But just to get back to doing what I love and what I miss so much, uh, I'll just be thrilled beyond belief. So, Chris, along those lines, do you find yourself when MSG Plus is rerunning some of these great Islanders games of the past, do you find yourself watching and doing play-by-play? <laughs> you know what? I do watch some of them. Not all of them because, uh, like, the ones from this year, the current ones, I, I kind of remember those very well. But I did watch the the Taveras Yes, Yes, Yes game through in its entirety because there were some things I'd forgotten about that. You know, that's four years removed now. And I certainly did watch uh, many of the Cup clinchers the other night. It was Sunday where MSG showed, uh, you know, Cups 1, 2, 3, 4, all four clinchers in order. So it was great to see it and mark the differences in those uh, the game. Oh, my God, it looks like they're skating in mud when you watch the 1980s team now, the dynasty, right? Uh, but it looks like they're skating in mud because the game is so fast now. I do actually find myself peeling away a little bit, though, from doing the play-by-play. Normally during a season, if I'm watching another game, I just can't take the play-by-play away. In my brain, I'm saying, all right, do I know who number seven is on that team? Do I know who number 12 is? Do I know? Now it's like when I see the Islander Dynasty team, I might know that team number-wise better than the current team. So those numbers are you know, drilled into my head. I don't have to worry about uh, who the names and numbers are because I know them all. And it is interesting to see some of the names and numbers on the other side. I will say that you forget about, you know, some of these players the Islanders are playing against and guys that have gone on and become coaches and executives in the National Hockey League. So I do check in on those games every now and then, especially the Dynasty games and the Sean Bates penalty shot game was on the other night. I worked that one with John Weideman and, uh, you know, I had an incredible a post-game interview with Sean Bates in the Blue Line Bar and Grill in the basement of the Coliseum, for those who remember that, where we had, you know, Sean Bates come in and Peter Laviolette come in. And, uh, you know, so those memories do come flooding back when uh, they play those games that I've gotten to work and now get a chance to look back on. I have to ask you as a dog owner, I know how my dog has been handling this. He looks at me and my wife on a fairly regular basis and quizzically, I think, is asking what the heck he is still doing here. And, you know, we joke that he's got to get in touch with all his other little doggy friends in the neighborhood and cancel all the parties that he would have when we're out working. Um, How is your dog handling this situation? Exactly right, Mark. It's so funny. We have a beautiful three-year-old chocolate lab. Her name is Bailey, not for Josh Bailey, for uh, Bailey's Irish Cream. She's the color of that uh, chocolate lab. 
But my wife says it every single day. What is she going to do when we all leave? Because my wife uh, is in East Isaac Middle School and my two uh, children go to East Isaac School District as well. So they're all kind of away at the same hours every single day. And of course, I'm on the road a lot. So the dog got used to being by herself when daddy's on the road, especially, let's say, for a 10 game road trip. Right. Uh, and now we've been home 24 hours a day, seven days a week. She's getting all the love in the world. And uh, we're wondering, does she want us to leave? Is she looking for a little of that alone time? Or is she just loving the fact that uh, she's never seen more attention in her life? You give me a chance to give my Bailey a pop. And uh, he was named because he picked his name. So if you Google um, or look on YouTube for uh, Bailey Puppy Picks His Name, you'll get the entire story. It's uh, I, I've, I've often uh, wondered how it never went viral because it is one of the all-time coolest things I've ever been a part of. Um, geez, almost seven and a half years ago already. I got to do that. I didn't know that. I will do that yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was fun. We, uh, My wife picked three names. I put them all in a hat and uh, threw three sheets of paper on the floor. And uh, I'll, I'll let the video tell the rest of the story. All right. I want to see that. We had, we had Coco prior to Bailey. She was in the chocolate lab as well. So my wife uh, come up with two great names for a chocolate dog, right? We had Coco and now Bailey. And every time Josh Bailey scores a goal, I look at him and say, see, you won the game again. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually tell Josh Bailey about my dog Bailey to make sure he understood it was not named after him. We did have that conversation. <laughs> so, but now with the song that they're singing for Josh every night, if you bring your dog to a game, they'll think, uh, you know, he's being serenaded. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Hey, speaking of games, and this is play by play with me. If we were to play a board game, Chris King, mm -hmm. what game would you choose to play? Um, I guess Monopoly, right? An all-time classic. We've uh, played that a lot with the family. We haven't broken that out yet in the quarantine. I'm sure it's not far down the list, but I, but I guess that's the all-time classic, right? And plus, because, uh, you know, you're looking to kill time now. So <laughs> maybe that would be the one that, uh, you know, you'd want to play the most. And that seems to be the one that the family has most fun playing together. So I think I'd stick with, with an all-time classic. I was a big Clue guy growing up. You know, Clue was probably my favorite growing up, but I think these days I would go with Monopoly. Okay, good stuff. Hey, listen, I really appreciate the time. This has been a blast. I've, uh, it's absolutely, in all the years that we've known each other, it's by far the longest conversation we've had a chance to have. Yeah, it hasn't been great. I've loved it, too. It's like a little trip down memory lane. So, so much fun for me, too, Mark. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Mark Renee. That's Chris King. Hey, Kinger, thanks for stopping to play-by-play -play with me. Anytime, Mark. And hopefully you'll have some real play-by-play -play to play very soon.